0: Hey guys, this is Kabane the Christian. Before we get into the subject of today's video, I want to thank everybody who has made a contribution to my Patreon. I also wanted to ask you guys what you would think if I made the uh, chapter-by-chapter discussion of the C.S. Lewis books, the Cosmic Trilogy, premium content for $5 contributions and up. The reason that I'm thinking of doing that is because it seems to have a more um, specific uh, audience. it seems to uh, it provoke interest from those who uh, might be more incentivized to actually um, invest you know five dollars a month in this rather than those who have a, a more casual interest. And I want to speak to both groups of people. Uh, but I also want to provide more kind of concrete reward for those who participate in the patron program than I have thus far. Uh, My problem in general is that I try not to say anything unless I believe that it's worth saying, but if I believe that it's worth saying, I find it very difficult to limit the audience. So I hope you guys can empathize with me on that. And I would like your um, uh, thoughts on how to go forward with that. So uh, what do you guys think if I've made the C.S. Lewis Cosmic Trilogy commentary that is the chapter by chapter commentary? Uh, exclusive for $5 and up, except perhaps for certain chapters where um, it's a launch pad for discussing other issues of more ubiquitous interest. Okay, so um, this week I've been focused on completing my um, THM thesis, So, but I still wanted to put out some material. So this video at some point in the future may be re edited together with some visual aids, but I didn't want to leave you high and dry. Uh this is a discussion of the nature and the theology of prayer. There are a few things that I've written which I think some uh, really unite and sum up uh, many different aspects of what I think have come to discover about the world, God, Christianity and you know the relationship of everything to everything else. And this is one of those pieces. So this is probably going to be a multi-part video because I don't want to make it too long. Uh again if the ads are prohibitive for you, you can Uh, listen to this in podcast form and also if you wanted to make a 99 cent contribution per month you can also do that very easily in the second link below so let's get started this is called prayer in the Holy Spirit as the reign of God that's the title of the article what is prayer in the Holy Spirit the cosmos is constituted by the will of God as it is realized in a twofold motion the father and the son are mutually interior to one another through the love of the holy spirit it's called perichoresis is the technical term for it the movement from the father to the son in the spirit is immediately reciprocated by the movement of the father of the son to the father in the spirit it is this relationship which creates the ontological possibility of a creation the splendor of god painted on the canvas contingency. That is something which doesn't have to exist. The Father's motion outwards by the Spirit and in the Son is the creative procession by which existence takes its shape and its qualitative distinctness. That it is so constituted entails that in the very same motion it reverts inward back to the Father from the Son gathered into his bosom by the Holy Spirit. Underlying all existent things are the formalities which give them their shape and their irreducible character. These formalities or forms are timelessly and eternally present in the divine mind as perfections, divine ideas. Insofar as particular perfections constitute the uncreated principles of creatures, they are called the Logi. The sustenance of creation occurs through and only through the active and constant will of God to hold it in its being what it is. That is, there is no being abstracted from being in a particular way. To sustain the universe in existence means that it is sustained in existence according to its irreducible network of particular and specific and contingent qualities. In this respect, contemporary philosophical language for consciousness is very useful. For the scriptures very regularly speak of the divine memory. God remembers his covenant. When he redeems the cosmos from destruction through Noah, we are told that God remembered his covenant, such that The Holy Spirit again began to flow creatively in all things. A wind blew, according to Genesis chapter 8, C.F. Genesis 1, verse 2. The Spirit of God was over the face of the waters. A thing exists only insofar as God is interior to that thing as its principle of existence. This hypostatic interiority is called knowledge in the deepest sense. As Paul describes, then, that is in the eschaton, I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Elsewhere, speaking, I believe, to the Galatians, he says, you have come to know God, or rather, you have been known by God. That is, the basis of our knowledge, the foundation of our capacity to know anything at all, is the reality that God knows us infinitely more deeply than we know ourselves. This is indeed how the marital bond is exalted into the expression of God's creation of a new person, the development of the image of God in the birth of a new human being and the conception of a new human being. And Adam knew his wife. The scriptures said. Uh, this is a very frequent phrase used throughout the scriptures, and it's often called a euphemism as if the biblical author were simply embarrassed to use explicit language about sex. But if you know the Bible, you know that the biblical authors are not embarrassed to tell very um, uh, raunchy stories about the horrible ways that people twist sex. Nevertheless, being as willing as they are to use such language and describe these horrible perversions they will say Adam knew his wife. This is not a euphemism. A euphemism is meant to hide reality, but to call the conjugal act, the mutual interiority, in a corporeal way between husband and wife, knowing does not conceal reality, but reveals the nature of that reality. The language of memory is of paramount importance scripturally and theologically. It is used to describe the most important divine acts, the revelation of the divine name, the Passover, the Holy Eucharist, and so forth. When Israel is oppressed by Egypt, we are told that God saw the people of Israel and God knew, Exodus 2.25. For God to see them is to say at the basic metaphysical level that as the cosmos was gathered into the Father's bosom by the Holy Spirit, the injustice of Israel's situation was directly apprehended in the mind of God. Since God constitutes the world after the pattern of his Logos, in which all things are rightly ordered in relation to each other, the injustice or unrighteousness of the act creates a disjunction between the archetype of a thing and its actual expression and creation. This disjunction is overcome by the revelation of the name of God, the central theme in the book of Exodus. The name means the self-disclosure of God according to God's character, his qualities, and his activities. It is the name of God in which all other names are summed up. Every name is what it is in its being a distinct echo of the name of God. And I note, as a side note, this is how you show how silly it is to argue that the distinct names of God have anything to do with originally independent sources. Or even worse to say that the passage in Exodus by the name El Shaddai, or I revealed myself to the patriarchs as El Shaddai by the name the Lord, Tetragrammaton, they did not know me. It's even more absurd to say that this means they didn't know the verbal or the the auditory sound (laughs) of this name or the, uh, the lettering of the name. Yes, the personal name, the Lord, had been used by the patriarchs, but to say that he did not reveal himself as the Lord means that the quality of God which is expressed and characterized by that name was not actively revealed in concrete historical circumstances during the patriarchal period. And indeed, that's true because the quintessential notion that is encapsulated in the Tetragrammaton, is God of he who is and he who causes to be. He who causes to be, he who causes Israel to be born as a nation. He who actively fulfills the promises that he was almighty to fulfill. So, the promise maker, El Shaddai, the promise keeper, is the Lord, the Tetragrammaton. For God to see is for the reality of creation, to be gathered into him, through the reversion of all things, and I'm using reversion here in this technical theological sense I mentioned earlier. And for God to know is for him to actively move to remake the way of things in the process of engaging with that reality. And it's important to keep in mind that these things are happening simultaneously. We should be very wary of saying that language of God's seeing or God's knowing is anthropomorphic language. Because as James Jordan, and I recently heard Father Stephen DeYoung say the same thing, as they both said, God is not ever described anthropomorphically. We are created theomorphically. The archetype for the act of seeing, the ontological basis for the possibility of God creating such a thing as an eye with the capacity to do something we call seeing, The ontological basis for that is infinitely deeper than its created symbol in our bodies. So to say that God sees is not to describe him anthropomorphically. It is rather to describe the metaphysical basis, that quality in God, which is symbolized in a limited and finite way in human creatures. And that's what I'm trying to capture here. The name of God, the Tetragrammaton, is then spoken to Moses. And we are told these words. This is my name forever. And thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Memory, in relation to the covenant, is always a double reality. First, God remembers. God gathers a set of circumstances into his mind. And in that gathering... In that knowledge of the world, through his wisdom, he suffuses it with his divine response. Because the world as it exists is existing through God's flowing through it, through his operations. And God's divine response is constituted as a feature of those operations. So for God to sustain the creation in existence means that he is always moving through it. He is always pulling the strings. He, is, he has his fingers in all pies, as it were. His providence is comprehensive. And that is the basis for the faithfulness of God, which is the basis in turn for our trust in him. When God remembers something, he does so perfectly. He knows everything about it. There is also the receptive aspect of memory. When God acts to remake the situation, the consequence of his memory, the consequence of his knowing something as it is and his action upon that basis, when he acts to remake that situation, it is to imbue the consciousness of the people on whose behalf he has acted with the character of his act. The cosmos becomes wholly interior to the mind of God as it reverts into him. Remember, reversion is what happens simultaneously with God's creative self-extension, which we call procession. The mind of God, disclosed and exegeted through the revelation of the name, is to become wholly interior to the mind of the people and that is why i think the phrase throughout your generations is used here because one of the reasons that god is acting and one of the reasons that he acts in bursts followed by periods of relative stability is because he desires his people to soak up what he has done god is really big and even though he condescends to our finitude he's always expanding us to receive his bigness whenever he acts, even in a very slight way, whenever he acts visibly, it takes a long time to assimilate. And so, God sows himself into the world as its principle of life. He is the seed which enters into the world and gives it new birth. Um, this is, I think, one of the things that you see in Psalm chapter 104. You renew the face of the ground. But, It takes time, it takes generations, it takes the process of teaching it to your children for it to become interior to the mind of the nation considered as a single unit. It takes the principles embodied in this revelation to be repeated over and over and over again. God wants Israel to know this really, 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 really well, which is why whenever Israel sins in the book of Judges, he just spanks them right off the bat. Israel is being treated uniquely here because it is Israel which is the instrument for the proclamation of God's name to the ends of the earth. And that's not the subject of this video, but it is a major theme of the book of Exodus, which will undoubtedly be a subject of some future video at some point. So God's tutelage of Israel here is essential not only for Israel's sake, but also so that the remnant of Israel, that sacred portion within Israel who had learned what God meant for them to learn, Everything that he does throughout Israel's story is to lead to that group of people, which is expanded by John the Forerunner, and that group of people becomes the core of the apostolic church, which then flowers forth and gives birth to the renewal of all the nations of the world, including all Israel according to the flesh, because it eventually circles back to them and gathers up every part of the human family. a Little bit of a tangent, but kind of cool. It is the second aspect of this process that is become the, the work of God in history becoming interior to the mind of the nation. It's the second aspect which will ultimately answer the original question about the nature of prayer. The double motion of procession and reversion is the necessary structure of the cosmos, is, if there is, to be a cosmos. There's no possible world whose existence does not manifest the structure of communion. Because paradigmatic existence, what it means for anything to exist at all, is the triune communion of the one God. There's no God but the true God, and the true God is Trinity. There's no existence but that which is found in God, and God exists as and only as Trinity. It's not as if this is just some contingency, and he could well have manifested as a quaternity or a unity, a unity in you know, the sense of Unitarianism. Um, so paradigmatic existence manifests as an intrinsic quality, that structure, that is the structure of communion. What is contingent, what doesn't have to be the case, just given the qualities of reality, is the participation of man in this twofold motion. So God could have created a world where he creatively extends himself out to facilitate a contingent Uh, family of creatures, and in virtue of these creatures being constituted by God's self-extension, as any creature would have to be, just given the nature of what it means for a thing to be a creature, given that reality, they are reverting back inwards to the bosom of God. God is knowing them into existence, and he is knowing them as he receives them back. He's extending and receiving. But what doesn't have to be the case, given that structure is man being in the center of this. Okay, So man is the generations of the heavens and the earth, right? Man by a sheer act of grace and divine willing, it's an additional layer of contingency. It's not necessary either for what it means for God to exist, nor for what it means for him to make the choice to create a world. So God didn't have to create a world, but he did create a world. But there are worlds that he could have created which don't have man in the center as the mediator between God and the world. Man's been placed in the center of this twofold motion. Okay? So God has co constituted freely with the human family the actual structure of reality by forming man as the generations of the heavens and the earth, the sun of the heavens and the earth, a microcosm of the whole world, spiritual and corporeal together. In my other videos, remember, I've discussed how uh, a gener- generations of the heavens and the earth is a phrase which is used to introduce genealogies throughout Scripture. So the generations of Adam means what is generated from Adam's body. That is his descendants. That is used nine other times in the book of Genesis, and every single time it means the exact same thing as it means here. This actually provides insight into the Gospel of Matthew, because in Matthew it says, the book of the generations of Jesus the Messiah, point being that the history of Israel is not only leading to Jesus, but it also flows from Jesus. And if you think that's some kind of arbitrary attempt to reconcile the meaning of Matthew's use of the phrase with the Mosaic use of the phrase, I want you to take a look at Isaiah 11, which says that Jesus is the root and the shoot of David. He's the root of Jesse, the shoot of David. So this is a theme which runs from Old to New Testament. And heaven and earth, in Genesis 1-1, means the whole creation, it's a merism. Merism uh, is a word which means you use two words together and it refers to the entire system, so uh, Nothing is, I don't think, a pure merism. I think a merism always has some kind of inner logic to it. There's a reason that two particular words are meristic for a whole set of realities, like take the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, Goodness is the archetype for existence, And so to know good and evil means you know how to creatively restructure the world in such a way that it would increase its goodness. That's why the tree of knowledge of good and evil is the tree of wisdom. It's the tree which allows you to exercise dominion from a position in the divine council. I have a video just on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because of that, because it means that, because it has to do with dominion, and because dominion is predicated on the knowledge of the inner goodnesses of things, because of that, it's used as a merism for knowing everything, which is why wisdom, when wisdom is given to Solomon, it means Solomon becomes a renaissance man. Solomon is utterly fascinated with everything, and he's the king. So, you know, the king can uh, uh, read the books he wants to read. I mean, it's a great privilege in the ancient world to be the king, because you don't have the internet. Solomon becomes interested in something. He's going to say, hey, does anyone in this whole dang country know a book about this issue? He can call in a freaking ape, from Af- I mean, this dude is the king of Israel, okay? He's in the Middle East. Imagine, like, he says, oh, I'd love to see an ape sometime. But anyways, the only time that, that apes are mentioned in the scriptures. But Solomon studies the birds and the beasts and the various animals. He, he takes a look at them. He says, these are really cool. And not only does he say these are really cool, he says, this shows just how cool God is because he will teach us lessons throughout the book of Proverbs about God and about how we should relate to God from the animals. Okay, that's a major theme here. How did Adam know that he was supposed to have a partner? Well, the animals came to Adam, and they came to him in pairs. We know that because Adam's uh, story anticipates Noah's story. Okay, so the animals come to Noah just as they come to Adam, the same language is used, and when they come to Noah, they all come in pairs. So Adam, he's looking for a partner. He needs someone to help him out. He needs someone uh, Someone else needs to be there to help him complete his task. And God wants Adam to understand who he is. That's what it means to become wise. You understand who you are. And Adam, by studying the animals, he learns something about the world. He learns something about God. And he learns something about himself, namely. All of these animals have a partner. And the partner isn't just, you know totally different from them. It is different but there's a certain likeness as well. So Adam learns that he needs a partner who's like himself. In other words, bone of my bone. And that word in Hebrew not only means bone, it also means self. Self of myself and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called fire girl for she because she was taken out of fire guy. Uh, the word ish and isha is a pun on the word esh which is fire, as James Jordan points out, which is why the next time in the book of Genesis that you're going to see this word for deep sleep, it's not a common word, but the next time you see it, it's Genesis chapter 15, what does Abraham do? He cuts the animals in two, and what happens? The animals are reunited back together, and what is reuniting them? Well, it is the fire of the Holy Spirit, the flame of God. The flame of God sets mankind alight in such a way that man does not burn up. Note how this is then used in the story about the burning bush. What does Solomon say in the Song of Songs? He says that love is stronger than death. Interesting phrase to use. Love is stronger than death. What is love? Love is the flame of Yah. Use the first two letters of the Tetragrammaton, and actually the very etymology, the very structure of the words for man and woman in this context uh, are predicated on the first two letters of the Tetragrammaton. There's so much cool stuff to go into there, but we unfortunately don't have time to do all of it today. But a lot of really cool and interesting stuff. Um, I don't actually remember where I was going with that tangent ref. I already got to my point, but I think you may well have learned something useful and if you didn't, well, you know. Please forgive me. Um, So man becomes a microcosm of the entire creation, spiritual and corporeal together. To put it in a different way, man becomes a partner with God in the ongoing work of creation. The actual ontological life of the cosmos flows through the human family, though not by metaphysical necessity. Okay, so I want to make clear what I'm actually claiming here because uh, it, it might sound like I'm claiming, oh well, man has the capacity to own land. He has the capacity to, you know, change the cosmos. He can take out a shovel and he can dig and something will change. I am making that claim, but it's actually much stronger than that. I'm saying that the cosmos exists within man in such a way that with man having been created, God has wired man and the world together in such a way that their fates are tied so closely that if man were just to disappear, the nature of what man is and the nature of what the world is would entail that that, with absolute ontological necessity, means the world would disappear with him. Now, the reason that we know that's never going to happen is because the devil tried to sink the ship and God tied himself to the mast in the incarnation. And the problem with God is that he's actually bigger than the ocean that the devil was trying to sink the ship into. So God is quite literally unsinkable. So it's a—it's really a, a quite a substantial conundrum for the enemy to try to sink the ship in an ocean which is infinitely smaller than someone who's actually on... The ship, but he's been working very hard and uh, has not done a good job, as you can see by the widespread knowledge of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob around the world. So, uh, this will be a multi-part series. Uh, I'm—it's a—you know—it's a a pre-read article that I've written, but you know I'm throwing in additional comments as. The video goes on and as I lose self-discipline to throw out all the stuff that is popping up in my head and as I'm getting distracted. So I hope you enjoyed it, both that which was pre-written and that which is thrown off the top of my head. I think that there were a relative few amounts of uh's which really irks me, even in those parts of the video which were not scripted. So I'm very proud of myself for that fact. In any case, thank you very much for Watching or listening if you haven't made a contribution to patreon yet Please do consider doing so as I mentioned the cosmic trilogy chapter-by-chapter Discussion may be a five dollar and up thing from now on though There is still one last part of the introduction to the cosmic trilogy that I am going to do and uh, If you want to contribute 99 cents there per month There is an easy way to do that in the second link below. So thank you very much for listening, and I will see you, by God's will, tomorrow.